You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. I wonder if you can remember a time in your lives when you uh, have felt particularly intimidated. I could probably think of a few embarrassing stories of my own, but I just want you to... It's not a thing you like to dwell on, but can you ever remember a time of feeling intimidated? I was um, reading a story in the news this week that is a kind of interest to us. It's, it's in, interesting in a few different ways, but there was a, a radical feminist by the name of Maria McLaughlin who was uh, in court, um, and she'd been assaulted by a man by the name of Tara who identifies as a woman. She'd been assaulted. Her camera had been smashed and she'd been punched. And so this guy who identifies himself as a woman was in court being prosecuted. And she was, uh, she was the, the person bringing their charges, I suppose you would say. And the judge ordered her to refer to the defendant using the pronouns her and she. And she refused. Because as a radical feminist, she doesn't believe that men who identify as women are really women. Interesting case, isn't it? It struck me as interesting that the, the case being brought there and the situation that's unfolding there is a judge was ordering someone to do something that they believed was wrong and they, they believed was lying. And they were under oath. They'd made this, this uh, promise to you know, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. In their opinion, they were doing that. And the judge was using the weight of their office and their authority to try and bring this person to do something they didn't want to do. That's quite an interesting thing. And I think we're probably going to see more of it in our culture in uh, years to come. And I couldn't verify this. I remember reading earlier in the week, I'm pretty sure I remember this, that the judge had also ordered, after the case had finished, that people didn't go outside because there was a, a crowd of activists there ready to cause trouble. So there's this intimidating situation going on, especially for Maria McLaughlin, I'm sure, and the people that are with her. And, you know, that's a... It's interesting on a number of levels. It's interesting because it talks about this intimidation, which I want us to think about today. And it's interesting because it's a a microcosm of some of the things as Christians we're going to have to face. A growing pressure to adopt a a worldview, which I would say is anti-creational. We believe that everything is made through Christ and for Christ and has its fulfillment in Christ. Everything that exists does, and therefore we're to use the created order according to its natural function for the glory of God. And there's a growing pressure in the world around us to say that's wrong, that people should be free to do and behave however they like, as you know, as long as um, they're not transgressing anyone else's rights, they can do whatever they want. And that, we're under a great deal of pressure as Christians to believe those things, whether it be uh, the issue of gay marriage or transgender, all, all sorts of things. And a whole bunch of other things are coming, I, I would suggest, along those lines. That's a, that's a present pressure, a sense of intimidation, I think, is very real for most Christians. That we feel a, a pressure, both explicit and implicit, to modify our views and perhaps be ashamed of them by the world around us. We're not in court, under a court case, but we definitely feel, if you're anything like me, we feel that pressure. Would you agree on that particular case? Of course, that's just the present issue. Christians have always felt... Uh, a, a pressure to be, to modify their beliefs, to change their behavior, to change their message according to the pressures of the world around them. We might characterize the current movement as progressive pressure, that this idea that there's a story that, you know, of human development that's going to leave us behind in our medieval worldview. But, you know, a hundred years ago, there's a liberal movement that said, you know, 
we're, we're rational now. We, surely we can't expect people to believe in miracles, you know, in an age of light switches and steam trains and whatever. We can't believe, you know, and there was a pressure on the church to change its message to, to get rid of all the miraculous stuff. There's a, a, been a pressure in the intervening years of secularism to modify our message and to say, you know, religion's all well and good, but we can't take it into the public space. We need to, you know, we can't teach our kids about our religion because that's brainwashing. There's this kind of neutral thing. We just have to give everyone the bare facts, the scientific facts, and then obviously the truth will emerge. And Christians have been told there's no place for their faith in schools. And, you know, and going back through the years, we can think of a whole number of things where uh, Christians have been pressured to change what they believe and how they behave. Well, today's reading, just to bring that back to where we started, is all about our confidence, the confidence that we can have in the face of intimidation, and which gives birth to persecution, but really intimidation, the pressure to change how we speak and how we behave as Christians. And so just to unpack that a little bit for you, Peter and John were in a very intimidating situation. It's very easy to read, oh, they appeared before this handheater and they gave this amazing message. But if you just think of, especially the way Luke constructs the story, he's very particular about the details. First of all, they're, they're arrested by the Sadducees who are enraged by what the apostles are doing. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead and they're these unschooled, you know, Guys from some backwater part of the country preaching resurrection and loads of people are following them. They're outraged by this. The Sadducees were rich. They were from wealthy, influential families. They carried a huge amount of weight and they had the apostles arrested. They used their influence with the temple guards and the whole of institutional Judaism at the time to have them arrested and thrown into prison. And the next day, the Jewish council assembles. And notice how Luke doesn't leave it there. He he mentions who's there. The whole Jewish council, the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. He wasn't actually the current high priest. He was a previous high priest, but he still had a huge amount of influence. And Caiaphas were there. Annas and Caiaphas were influential in the decision to have Jesus put to death. So it's quite an intimidating crowd if you're an apostle, isn't it? And I don't know who John and Alexander were. Um, but I'm guessing Luke mentions them because of their prestige, their influence. And others of the high priest's family. And they were made to stand in the middle of them. And uh, our historical um, sources tell us that the Sanhedrin was shaped, imagine, like a, imagine a semicircle, but it's actually more like a wheat sheaf shape. So it, it's, it's not just a wide semicircle, it kind of closes in like a like a wheat sheaf, like that, around that. And you're standing in the middle with all these, the top dogs, the head honchos, assembled. And they, it's deliberately intimidating. They want these guys to shut up. They want the Christians to be quiet. And yet what they think will happen, having brought the full force of their status and prestige and privilege and worldly authority to bear on this, this group of apostles, what they think will happen doesn't happen. It's this incredibly dramatic turn in the story that Luke presents for us. They think they've won, you know, Jesus is gone, there's a few pesky um, disciples to deal with, but nothing, you know, we've basically, we've sorted the Jesus problem. And just at the moment when they think they're just mopping up, the apostles turn up and they ask this question, and they ask this question, and I think it's genuine ignorance. They really don't expect the answer. By what name or what power are you doing these things? No, these things. Notice they don't deny them the healing happened. But it hasn't even crossed their mind that it's anything to do with Jesus yet. Trickery or some, you know, some, something. And Peter just floors them, I think, with this answer. Jesus, whom you killed, is alive again. And he did this. Isn't that amazing? All that intimidation brought to bear. 
And I just, I, it makes me think of, you know, so many kind of myths and stories where the turning point comes when you think all hope is lost. You think all hope is lost and the enemy thinks they've won and there's a growing kind of crowing confidence among the enemy. We've won the day, now we've just got to finish them off. And out of nowhere comes the hero. And that's, that's, that's what's happening here. But it's, it's true. It's a true myth, a real thing that actually happened. And so, and so Peter says this and kind of, you can sense in the spiritual realm, the pillars of the temple begin to, to tremble. You know, the, the cracks in the whole edifice of, of institutional Judaism begin to, begin to show. And, and Luke's purpose in recalling the events like this, not only to encourage us with, you know, with what was happening in the early church, but he particularly wants to show us that the words Jesus had spoken prophetically to the disciples before his death were coming true. Words he spoken in Luke chapter 21. He said to them, in the future, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name and so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words of, and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And Luke is presenting this account to show this is exactly what is happening. They are seized, they are put in prison, they are brought before the rulers and the authorities, they give testimony to Jesus, Jesus gives them the words, notice um, Luke writes, uh, writes for us, Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, he's divinely inspired to say these words, uh, sorry, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is divinely inspired to say these words. And uh, so Jesus has given them the words to say. And after our reading today, it finishes with this conclusion that, that they can't contradict. It, um, Luke says in his gospel, and it, it finishes with this conclusion in Acts, there was nothing they could say. They couldn't decide how to punish them. Do you see what, do you see what Luke is doing? He's showing us that Jesus' words are coming true. And you know that's such an encouragement for us today. You know, time and again, Jesus is saying to the, the to the disciples, time and again, and to the church down through the ages, you will feel like you are on the losing team. You will feel, as individuals, as local churches, as the church as a whole, you will feel like you failed, like the enemy's won, like all hope is gone. It will seem like all options have expired, that there's no way out, but you will be secure in the midst of all these things. Isn't that an amazing encouragement? What a message to, for, for Luke to write this book of Acts to the, the first Christians reading this, surrounded by real terrible persecution. Much, actually much worse than the, these first disciples were facing this passage. Think of all the situations down the years when churches in different countries have been persecuted almost to extinction, when all hope seemed to have been lost. And God has turned things around. Think of it, the individuals who've been trapped beyond all hope of rescue. And God has turned the situation around. Think of what the church faces today. Some of the things we talked about at the beginning. You know, and be encouraged by this message. When it seems all hope is gone. When the intimidation level is ramped up to the maximum. Just then, just then, God will show his, his power. So... I think that's a great message on its own, and um, we could leave it there, but there are kind of three specific points I want to bring out uh, for us this morning. In fact, three pillars of confidence in our faith that I think uh, we can lean on that Luke brings out for us. Three things we can lean on when we're feeling those pressure of intimidation or persecution. And those three things, firstly, the prophetic power of Christ. 
Secondly, the healing power of Christ. And thirdly, the uniqueness of Christ. I think all things um, Luke brings out for us. So we're going to look at those in turn. So firstly then, the prophetic power of Christ. Peter, verse 8, as I've already mentioned, Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter delivers the perfect response to their accusations. God divinely inspires him immediately. You know, we're not talking like Peter had a good day. You know, we're not like Peter had gathered his thoughts or anything. God fills him with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies, basically, this answer to their accusations. He brings out these key verses from Scripture. I'm pretty sure Peter hadn't been studying the Bible that hard up until this point. Brings out these key verses from Scripture to make the point, this is the cornerstone that you've rejected, that God has made the capstone of his salvation plan, and convicts them of their wrongdoing. He leaves them dumbfounded. You know, these were clever guys. These were sort of like legal eagles. If there was a loophole, if there was a way to get him to shut up, if there was something wrong with what he said, they would have got it. And they were just like, that's a really good point. <laughs> and, and he embarrassed these, these experts publicly. There's nothing they can say. And this is, as I said, this is fulfilling Jesus' promise. And that promise, it is on a a personal level, it's a personal promise to us too, that if we're over in that situation, God will provide for us. But what I want to focus on today is here, Peter as kind of an archetype of the church. You know what I mean by archetype? Like a a shadow, like a figure that, that represents the whole thing. So here we can see that this promise isn't just to the apostles, like when you individuals are arrested and kings persecute you and so on, you will have these words. But it's also a a prophetic word to the whole church, that the church as a whole, when we are in these situations, God will provide us with incredible wisdom and power to refute the accusations and the attempts of the enemy. It's spoken about um, in Revelation in some difficult to interpret passages in Revelation 11, you have the picture of Elijah and Moses who represent, to a certain extent, this aspect of the ministry of the church. And you don't need to turn to it, but just to give you an idea of how this weaves through the whole of Scripture. You know, um, John in Revelation says, If anyone would harm these two, fire pours from their mouth and confu- consumes their foes. That's a picture of the church in relation to enemies who would persecute and in- uh, intimidate us. Not fire as in literal violence, but as in the ability to refute to speak back, to react prophetically and powerfully with God's wisdom to what the world says against us. And I'm just trying to think of examples of this. I, I, I thought of a few from all over the place, but I, I want to start with one I, I discovered on a documentary the other day. I was um, learning about King Alfred the Great. Does anyone know much about King Alfred the Great? Anyone know the most famous story about King Alfred the Great? He burns the cakes, right? <laughs> He burned the cakes uh, on his way to uh, a place of refuge in the Somerset marshes called Athelney. And uh, what happened, he was ambushed in Chippenham. He and his whole uh, large part of his army were in Chippenham. And the Vikings were attacking the country, uh, the whole of the British Isles at the time. Vikings, they were pagans. They were bringing pagan religion into the country. Alfred was a very devout Christian, very, very sincere Christian. Uh, and apparently, it's hard to tell through all the saintly stories and so on, but, you know, really heartfelt, gentle, gracious guy. Anyway, having been ambushed, he and a few people escape, and they go to the marshes because he knows them, uh, and it's just really hard for Vikings to get there and kill him, basically. And on his way, he's, you know, looking for this place. Um, he finds a place to rest, and this lady doesn't know it's King Alfred, says, I've got to pop out. You, you watch the cakes in the oven. <laughs> and he's a king, so he doesn't really know what he's doing, and he's distracted because he's thinking about what it, what's going to happen next and so on. And she comes back, and they're burnt, and she tells him off. 
which is just, it's got that ring of truth about it, hasn't it? You know, it's like so kind of weird that you kind of think that probably did actually happen. But thinking about this godly guy, and I'm deliberately choosing to be not, um, what's the word, not suspicious of history here, being generous in, in our interpretation of history here. Here's a guy who's he's godly, and he believes God is on his side because he's a Christian, and you know he believes this story, basically. And the Vikings present an almost overwhelming threat. You know, it, it looks like he's lost. They, the king of, it, of what remains of England outside of Viking control is living on an island in a marsh. All hope is lost. And he has a vision where a messenger from God tells him, you may feel like all hope is lost, but within seven days, the whole thing will be turned around. And that's what happens. Within seven days, he manages to gather an army from all over the British Isles. He defeats the Vikings, but he doesn't kill them. He converts them. But the, uh, the, the, the details of the truce are that uh, King Guthrum of the Vikings is this pagan guy who wants to you know, bring paganism back. Um, Alfred is so merciful, so moved by compassion for, for them that he, he says, instead of killing you, become a Christian. In fact, become my godson. Welcomes him into his spiritual family and baptizes 29 other Viking nobles. Now, I know those aren't the type of stories we always tell <laughs> when we're, you know, we're talking about this sort of thing. But I just think that's a really helpful illustration. Historically, time and again, you know, the tide has, uh, it, it seems like all hope is lost. Here's a specific situation where if I told you that story, if I was like some guy attacked me and he hated me and my family, he tried to kill us all and I managed to stave him off and then he became a Christian, him and his whole family, you'd be like, hallelujah, wouldn't you? Right, that's what, I mean, that's what happened, but it's the whole country. I mean, this is amazing. And the Holy Spirit is speaking and working through these facts of history, you know, th- through this situation, through King Alfred and his engagement with the Vikings, giving him wisdom and showing him what to do and enabling him to respond to his enemies in this amazing, world-changing way. We can, we can think of other examples. There was a time when um, uh, Jerome, a historian of the church, writes, um, in the 4th century, the whole world groaned and was astonished to find itself Arian. Arius was a heretic who believed that Jesus wasn't God. It was a time when nearly all the bishops and therefore all the churches in the whole of Christendom began to adopt his teaching. And it seemed like everything was was lost. And yet within the space of 50 years, the whole situation was turned around because God inspired wise and good men of good faith to speak the perfect message to refute that error. Now, I know that's the kind of thing I get excited about, theology and history and stuff. But do you see the point, whether you get excited about the details or not? Do you see the point that the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing as he was doing with Peter in this trial? Inspiring and enabling and guiding. It's, a, it's amazing. You know, even today, we think, I follow a guy on Twitter, and he's an anti-abortion campaigner in the U.S., and he keeps up to date with all the stuff that happens in the U.N. And you know, in the U.N., there are people who are lobbying day in and day out for um, the UN to bring in resolutions that will force poor countries to liberalize their abortion laws. Did you know that? And if you follow the news at all, it's happening all the time. Um, So that they will have the same types of abortion laws we will have. And uh, there are people, Christians, good Christians, who are serving uh, on behalf of governments all over the world who are fighting with the help of the Holy Spirit to stop those things happening at the highest levels of government all over the country. God is still at work all over in courtrooms and councils, in families and homes, in churches and nations, to defend his church through the inspiration of the Spirit today. 
You know, and, and that example I gave at the beginning, this kind of anti-creation stuff, where we're told that male and female doesn't matter and the way God has made us doesn't matter and it's just how you feel and feel free to behave however you like. That the pressure on, on Christians to change their views on those things is immense. Immense from the youngest to the oldest. It's all over. And there's a sense in which, you know, and businesses are on board, aren't they? Everyone sponsors uh, things to do with this. Uh, companies are on board. Judges are on board. Laws are being gathered against the church all over the world to force us to change our message and to change our behavior. But here, here, just on this particular thing, we can have confidence in those things, in that God, by his spirit, will inspire the church to come back with an irrefutable, unanswerable response with compassion and grace. That answers all the difficult and nuanced questions, but enables us to hold to the truth that's been passed down to us through 20 centuries. That's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? I wonder, just uh, to think about that point personally, I wonder, is there any issue, any issue of belief or behavior, anything where you personally have felt pressure to change your mind or your behavior compared to what the Bible says? Because you feel like it's a hopeless case. You feel like there's no winning. Is there anything? Fall back to the stronghold that God has given you. The same deposit of faith that we've had all this time. God will defend his church. He will enable us to speak the truth. He will answer all the questions. You do not need to change or shift because a group of powerful, influential, and persistent people are asking you to shut up or do something that God doesn't want you to do. So the prophetic power of Christ helps us face intimidation. Secondly, the healing power of Christ. There's just this wonderful moment where Peter just sort of goes, you know, it's not a very long speech. I don't know if, it's, if Luke has recorded the whole speech for us. It's not a very long speech. But he says, you know, if you, he, he begins, and he just sort of goes, oh, and by the way, here's the man who was healed. It's kind of like, you know, this, this unarguable proof, demonstration of the goodness of what they're doing, of the, of the power of what they're doing, the healing power of Christ. Our second pillar of confidence in the face of intimidation in the world around us is that our faith works. It's as simple as that. It works. It makes a difference. Jesus is alive. And thus the things we talk about are real. They're not figments of the imagination. They're not shadows or vague religious experiences. Jesus is definitely real and real enough certainly to heal people like he healed that, the lame beggar that, that Peter is talking about in this passage. You know, I love this, this line of thought from Peter again, the same kind of chutzpah we talked about on Easter Sunday. If we're questioned today, he says, because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. And to all the people of Israel, just raise the stakes a little bit, that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Isn't this a ground of our confidence? The the faith we have works. And not only is the lame man standing there, but Peter, Peter the overconfident coward, is standing there, utterly transformed from the man who denied Jesus to a guy now filled with the Holy Spirit and putting the rulers of Israel in their place. 
speak of the spokesperson of God in this situation. Utter transformation, restored and lifted up to lead the apostles. It's incredible, isn't it? It works. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of demonstration. I, I, as I was thinking about to say about this, you know, it's so obvious. But um, I just wanted to encourage you with a testimony. A guy, um, actually Paul used to speak about him a lot, a guy called Billy Bray, a dancing preacher. Um, and uh, I, I think Paul must have left me a copy of his, uh, um, what do you call it? Biography, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Biography, and uh, it was scraps of letters that he'd written and so on. And this guy was... Uh, he was a miner in the early 18th, uh, 19th century in Cornwall, and he was a pretty bad guy. He was uh, alcoholic, and he described himself as a riotous man, very poor. And this is how he describes his life before Christ. He says, I got in with a bad company of drunkards. You've got to imagine this with a Cornish accent of some sort. I remember one time getting drunk in the town of Tavistock. When going to our home, we met with a very large horse on the way. It was late in the night and two of us drunk got up on the horse. We'd not rode far before the horse struck its foot against the stone and fell down. It turned right over and nearly uh, nearly killed us both, but the Lord spared us, bad as we was, <laughs> he says. Thanks be to his holy name. This is before he's a Christian. Another time I got drunk and while sitting with a man, my hat fell off my head. Uh, it fell into a fire and was burnt, so I stole a hat to wear home. I was nearly sent to jail for that. But the man had the hat again. Another time we were a company of drunkards coming home from the alehouse, all drunk, and we unhung all the gates from the fields as we came by. <laughs> we was near to be sent to jail for that. And his, his biography tells the story, you know, he wasted his money. He was an alcoholic. He just, anytime he got money, he just went to the pub, basically, and spent it. He had a wife and seven children that he led into terrible poverty. Uh, and he says of himself, I was not only a drunkard, but bad in other ways. Too bad to write down here, he says and um, one day, after in, when he was mining, there was a great crack. There was a special name ahead for it, but the, the mine nearly collapsed over him. And that moved him to begin to seek God for real. And so he began to pray. And he was so moved that he couldn't sleep one night. And so he got up in the middle of the night to pray and ask God to save his soul. And this is his account of what happened. I said to the Lord, thou hast said, they, sh- they that ask shall receive, they that seek shall find, and to them that knock, the door shall be opened. And I have faith to believe it. That was his prayer of conversion. In an instant, he says, the Lord made me so happy that I cannot express what I felt. I shouted for joy. I praised God with my whole heart for what he'd done for a poor sinner like me. For what I could, for I could say, the Lord hath pardoned all my sins. I think this was November 1823. But what day of the month, I do not know. I remember this, that everything looked new to me. The people, the fields, the cattle, the trees. I was like a man in a new world. I spent the greater part of my time in praising the Lord. I could say with David, the Lord hath brought me up out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings and hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto my God. I was a new man altogether. And from that day, he didn't touch a drop of alcohol. And he was known as this dancing preacher because everywhere he went, he was always singing and dancing. Like someone came across him walking across Bodmin Moor and he could hear someone singing way off. And this guy walks around the rock and there's this guy like singing and dancing all by himself. Uh, 19th century worship songs, basically. And he became a powerful evangelist to the miners of Cornwall. And he planted churches. And, uh, you know, it's... Just one example of 2,000 years of examples, isn't it? It works. God changes lives. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with kings, the psalmist says. You know, Jesus works. He, he sets us free from sin. He heals our brokenness. He pours his love into our hearts. It works. There's a guy... Um, 
in uh, the third century, there was a persecution by an emperor called Valerian. And he had the uh, Bishop of Rome beheaded, and then he orders one of the senior members of the church to bring all the treasures of the church to him so he could confiscate them. And this guy, Lawrence, his name was. He brought all the treasures to the church. He brought all the poor and the sick, all those who were destitute, who were members of the church, and he brought them into the emperor's presence and said, here are the treasures of the church. Here are the treasures of the church. Because it works. Nothing else can lift up the lowly, can lift us out of the miry clay, as we sang earlier. Nothing else can heal and transform. Only Jesus. So again, just a bit of personal application. I think, what, why then are we intimidated when we have such an amazing, powerful message, an amazing and powerful faith? You know, I, th- I think we lose confidence in God when we cease to ask God for the powerful proof of our faith. When we settle for that godliness without power. You know, I'm convinced that the road to compromise, whether it's the road to liberalism or progressivism or anything else, the road to compromise begins when people stop asking God for the impossible. And they're just living Christian lives that basically they could probably manage without the, with or without the Holy Spirit. It doesn't really matter. You know, as it, this guy called Billy Bray knew, he knew that we had to ask and seek and knock. And that's what I want to encourage you to do this morning is if you want to be confident in the face of the intimidation we face as Christians, ask and seek and knock for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill your life in such a way that he's transforming you and using you to reach out to others in ways that cannot be explained away as natural. So you can, like Peter, go, well, you know, in the end, it doesn't really matter what you say because... It can be that definite. And you know from your past experiences that God has worked that powerfully in your life. We, even if it's not your recent experience, you know, whether it's in your own conversion or in the way he's used you in the past, you know that he can work that powerfully. And if you haven't had that experience, if you're a young Christian, then I would just urge you to, to seek the reality of the power of the Christian faith so you have something undeniable. God will not let you down. If you ask and seek and knock, he will move through you, fill you in such a way that you will know that you will know. And you'll be able to point to to other people the evidence of your faith in a real and powerful and persuasive way that can't be contradicted. So, the prophetic power of Christ in the church, the healing power of Christ in the church. And lastly then, the exclusivity of Christ. The third pillar of confidence we can have is the ex- in the face of intimidation is the exclusivity of Christ. Or as Peter says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We've seen the evidence that this is real. We've seen the evidence that the name of Jesus works. We've heard him speak prophetically through the church, so he cannot be contradicted. But here's, here's the final thing we need to know to have confidence. There is no other name that can do these things. There is no other name that can do those things. And it, Peter lays it down like a challenge to the Sanhedrin. You know, it's, it's like on the BBC, you know, there's advertising quality rules that they have, and if they mention Ready Breck, they have to mention, you know, their other ground porridges available, <laughs> whatever it is, I don't know. <laughs> you know, they have to mention very things. And, and it's almost like Peter is saying, you know, fine, okay, well, if you've got something that can do the same as what we've just done, let us know. But there isn't, is there? 
And, and, and that, that's a kind of frustrating thing about the Sanhedrin and about the whole of the Jewish opposition to Jesus. Is they were so offended by what was happening, but what were the alternatives? You know, hundreds and hundreds of years they've been trying to do things their own way. Jesus comes along, fulfills all the prophecies, everything begins to work, and you go, oh, we don't really like the way you're doing. Well, what are the op- what are the options? And and we see this all through Acts. Remember, there's these guys, the seven sons of Sceva. It's not that easy to say. <laughs> seven sons of Sceva. And they see the disciples, the early disciples, casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And even though they're not Christians, they begin to go... We can't cast out demons like that. We'll start casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Why? Because nothing else works. Uh, Remember Simon Major? So he's so impacted by seeing people filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a guy who has experienced that uh, magic. I mean, the suggestion is he employs the help of dark forces. But let's just say for argument's sake it's that or he's an illusionist or whatever. He's a guy obsessed with spiritual power, used to tricking people. And he sees one instance of people being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, I've never seen anything like that. How much can I pay you for it? (laughs) Not the best reaction, but do you see the point? There's no other name. And, And Peter says to Jesus, you know, during his ministry, there's that episode when all the people following Jesus turn away from him because he says something about eating his body and drinking his blood. And everyone's like, oh. And Peter's still following him. And Jesus says, aren't you going to leave too? And Peter says to him, where else? Where else can we go? You're the only person who has the words of eternal life. You know, this is, this is the point that Peter's making. The Sanhedrin still think they've got something to offer the people. Okay, we've got rid of this Jesus business and we're going to get rid of the disciple business and we're going to business as usual. And, you know, we're going to set Israel on a good path. <laughs> like we have done all the... I mean, it's nonsense, isn't it? They've got nothing to offer. And so when Peter says to them specifically, we hear this evangelistically, but remember who he's talking to. When Peter says to them, there's no other name, he's stating this fact. You know, he's saying to them, not you need to become Christians, although that's implied. What he's really saying is, we are the rock and you are the storm. (laughs) We are the ark and you are the flood. We're not going to topple or fall. We are not going to flood and sink. You, with all your pomp and importance, will one day disappear. But the church that I have been born again into will continue forever in the name of Jesus. You, the rulers of the people, will one day be a byword for hard-heartedness and intractability. People will make jokes about you. They'll say they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But when they think about Peter, they'll think about the found, founding apostle. They'll think about a fisherman from Galilee who went down in history as the first among the apostles. They'll think about the foundations of the church arrayed in rainbow colors for all eternity. There is no other name. You know, Gamaliel picks up um, this in his On the council, in Acts 5, there's another trial. It's almost like a repeat of what we've read today. And his conclusion to the rest of the council is, leave these guys alone. Let them speak. Because if if their purpose of activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop them. You'll only find yourself fighting against God. And that's basically what Peter's saying to them right now. There is no other name. Move. Get out of the way. (laughs) 
You know, this is unstoppable. And, you know, this confidence that the exclusivity of Christ should move us to share the gospel. It should move us to share the gospel. You know, there are good things outside the Christian faith. You know, there are good things in the world outside of being a Christian. There are are things that people enjoy. There are so many good things that aren't directly tied. And, you know, people of other faiths, they have to some extent, you know, in varying degrees, good lives, and they experience God's blessing in terms of common grace and so on. But none of those things can save. You know, there are good ideas all around us about how you can improve your life, how you can live better. There are ideas and fads and, you know, there are other religions. But they, they they can't save. They're just like little pools of puddles of water. That for a moment they think, oh, there's something here, and then they just disappear. But we have a living fountain, an endlessly pouring forth fountain in Jesus Christ. You know, and the people that oppose our message and want us to shut up and go away and would try and intimidate us have this confidence. They are not offering anything. There's nothing real there. They talk about freedom. They talk about love, but it's nothing. It's a nonsense. They don't have the treasure of the church. The message that the world is preaching at us at the moment would leave the poor destitute and broken and hopeless and childless. We have a message that lifts the poor from the ashes, sets people free, and sits them with kings. So the exclusivity of Christ should give us this confidence, no matter how confident, how well-polished the world around us is in its, in its treatment of Christians, no matter how good and slick that message looks, no matter how confident it is they're saying to us, we really think you should be, go away now and let us get on with the business of saving people and improving their lives. Only we have the truth that brings healing and salvation and pours divine love into people's hearts that utterly transforms them. So that's our final application. In the face of intimidation or persecution, we have to remember the people who attack us have nothing to offer. They want us to shut up, but they have nothing to say. (laughs) The devil's primary tactic in this generation is to forbid us to speak, like the council did in a few verses after our reading. We would ask that you don't do this anymore. Please shush. And our answer has to be no. Is it right for us? Ask yourselves, is it right to obey you or to obey God? That's the answer. The people around us are as out of ideas as Sanhedrin. And, you know, so we are commissioned by God in the face of these confident people who claim they have it together who look prestigious and powerful, we are commissioned by God to confound their highly polished worldliness with this simple message. We will not speak. We will not stop speaking, for there is no other name. Out of compassion for the lost, we declare there is no other name but the name of Jesus. For the glory of Christ, who created all things and for whom all things were created, we declare there is no other name but Jesus. For the joy of serving him, 
for the joy of seeing people come to know him and share in the joy of salvation, we declare to the world around us, we will not be quiet. There is no other name but Jesus. We should pray and appeal to God and beg him for this confidence, to believe it, for the urgency and the boldness to declare it to a world that looks like it and says it doesn't need it, but desperately does. So let's declare the prophetic power of Christ, the healing power of Christ, and the exclusivity of Christ. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.